Get out of my lane. Get out of my way. Giants confirmed coming through. We're back. I'm Trevor Ickrath. I'm Matt Ribeiro. And we've got a third host joining us today. Hey, uh, what's up, everybody? This is David uh, from Tuning Fork and The Stick, two other quality noise space shows that I will be plugging again at the end of this episode, for sure. It's our first ever crossover episode. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We're now allowing guests onto the program, as we talked about on our last episode, Mm -hmm. because we're approaching kind of the second era of They Might Be Giants, in which they opened up the band and like allowed a real human rhythm section to flesh out the tracks (laughs) that they actually put out a rhythm section one ad and people did reply right and i can't wait to talk about the guys who are now in the band because they're some interesting dudes uh yeah it's funny that it was a band of two guys that made albums together and then suddenly there's more guys and then this is a podcast where we were two guys and then suddenly there's more guys it's almost like we did it on purpose it makes you think doesn't it i'm the touring band that you're finally allowing into the recording studio David, why don't we talk about your relationship with They Might Be Giants before we get into this album? Because that's something Matt and I did on the first episode. Because you wanted to be on this episode, is this your favorite They Might Be Giants record? It is. And it has been for probably the last, uh, I want to say, 10 years or so. Matt and I, I think, became They Might Be Giants fans around the same time. Yeah. uh, Which kind of coincided with us being into Lemon Demon. Um the the comedy band uh, that Neil Cicerega formed uh, by himself back in the early aughts. Um, the the first album of theirs that I bought was The Spine. Um, it was the newest one at the time, uh, partially because it got a video done by Homestar Runner for the song Experimental Film, which I'm sure you'll love when you get that far. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I bought the album at Borders Books, uh, RIP, <laughs> and uh, through the magic of internet file sharing, I got my hands on the rest of their albums uh, totally legitimately, and <laughs> eventually bought every CD of theirs uh, that I could get my hands on. Cool. I'm looking forward to hearing about this album from the perspective of somebody who identifies it as their favorite because i know this is like a polarizing record for a lot of people yeah it's it's like when dylan goes electric exactly yeah a lot of fans straight up boycotted the shows for this album which is insane to me to think about yeah we talked about last time uh they had that what the don't step on the snake tour where like a lot of people showed up and just booed them whenever they now that they had a rhythm section it's kind of crazy to think that they had already such a a rabid fan base uh just this just this far into their career that you know they felt betrayed mm-hmm. by the band well they might be giants's early work feels like something that like people who really obsessively and possessively take an interest in things would latch on to yeah and like in that group of people i could see a lot of them not really being up for the change yeah Absolutely. Like, I mean, I could imagine myself being a certain kind of fan who who thinks that by taking on a more full band approach to their music, they're kind of making themselves less special. Mm-hmm. So I can kind of see that. But like, I think this is still like through and through a They Might Be Giants record. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's the the change isn't as as jarring as I thought it might feel. No, definitely not. I agree. They, they kind of started getting a fuller sound even on Apollo 18. And you talked on the Flood episode about when, uh, at least I think you talked about it, the time that they were on The Tonight Show performing Birdhouse in Your Soul with the full, like, brass section. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so they've been touring with the band on this record for a while. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how long, but then they finally brought them into the studio and recorded with them. 
Um, the band was uh, Tony Tony Maimon, uh, Graham Maybe, and Brian Doherty. Uh, and Graham and Brian's names appear on a later song uh, from the album Long Tall Weekend on the song They Got Lost. That's a good song, too. It's one of the longest and they're over too. But I, I hadn't really heard of any of these guys before, except for uh, Tony Maimon, who uh, was in like a uh, Pere Ubu. I don't know if I'm pronouncing any of those names right, but they're like a really, really well-regarded late seventies post-punk band who were really well-known for having such a great rhythm section. So it's cool to see him here. I can see how that happened just because like they spent so much of their early career opening for post-punk and no wave bands. Which is, like, really bonkers to think about, but... <laughs> I never think of people in post-punk bands as having a very good sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of, the, one of the members that had been part of their touring band prior, Jonathan Feinberg, uh, he was the guy who was on the drums for most of the Apollo 18 tour, but he did not end up on the album. That's where they. That's where Brian Doherty came in. And and these guys would only be in the band for like a te- like temporarily, right? Their current rhythm section, yeah, is is different people. Completely different. Okay, that's what I thought. I, I'd be interested in looking at one of those like personnel charts that they always have on Wikipedia. Yeah, when did the when did the like guys who are in it now show up? Because I know they've been in there for a while. Uh, Dan Miller and Danny Weinkoff, I think, joined around the same time. Um, I think they were uh, around the the uh, time of maybe uh, Mink, maybe a little bit before Mink Car. Um, and then uh, Marty Beller uh, joined as their drummer a little bit after that. Okay. I actually just found the chart on Wikipedia. I'll just link that where we're, uh, where we're chatting right now. There we go. So yeah, D- Dan Miller and Danny Weinkoff, yeah, they joined in like before the year 2000. They've been around for a while. Yeah, they've been along for the ride. Yeah. Yeah, and then for a while there was Dan Hickey on the drums, so there was there was three Dans and two Johns. Interesting. The band of Dans. And then uh, since around 2004, there's been Marty Beller on the drums. So they've had the same lineup for about 15 years now. But yeah, yeah, this is a very very short-lived configuration on this album. So I wanted to talk about the, um, the album's name and artwork, because this is one of my favorite They Might Be Giants album titles, just because of how like it works on a meta level. Mm-hmm. Like John Henry, I don't know if you guys are aware, you probably are, is that like American folktale about uh, one of like the strongest humans racing like a, an industrial machine, like breaking rocks through a mountain. Yeah, and like I love that they chose that as a name to go with the album where they replace all their drum machines and stuff with actual human musicians. That's great. Yeah, and then of course the parable where he dies of exhaustion at the end of the story, <laughs> relating that to the uh, how they felt being basically worked over by Electra, <laughs> who they have now just recently left. Even better. That's perfect. Yeah, because they 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 were put on much more rigorous touring schedule than they had really signed up for yeah this was the second to last album on electra yeah interesting because i read that the original uh title for this album was they might be giants have been set free (laughs) god that also would have been a good title but i don't think it would have been uh as evocative no i much prefer john henry I, I like that. The title is maybe my favorite thing about this project, although I do like the songs too. Yeah, and then the uh, the artwork is also uh, it's a it's some really striking artwork as well. Not one of my favorite album covers by these guys. Yeah, they have better ones, but I think it's pretty good. I do like the combination. Like once you go into the artwork on, inside, there's like some cool like contrast between like children and of course there are like a lot of skulls because this is a they might be giants project Mm -hmm. and they have banners that say we hate they might be giants (laughs) i missed that part (laughs) i have a quote from one of the giants i can't remember which one said this but they were asked what's with the skull on the cd and they said the skull was chosen as an element on the cover art partly to offset the adorable cuteness of the kids 
the effect of the whole thing seemed right for reasons hard to put into words. I feel like that's their explanation for a lot of things. Yeah. So we, we just kind of did it and didn't really think too hard about it. It's like when you try to get into song interpretations with John Linnell, he's like, yeah, stream of thought. Mm-hmm. I didn't think too hard about it. When, like, you know that's at least 50% true, but it's definitely at least 50% a lie. So do you guys want to get into the tracks? Well, we have 20 of them to get through, so that would probably be prudent. Yeah, I wanted to talk about this. Like, is this like, I feel like this is the first time where I felt trackless length fatigue with these guys. That's because they went over the 19 that they'd been known for before this. And even on like Apollo 18, like so many of the tracks were short little snippets and it was much more digestible. Yeah. Here, a lot of these are actual real songs and it <laughs> really just makes me tired. It goes over 50 minutes, yeah. They have two songs over four minutes, which is very bizarre for them. Absolutely, yeah. But let's start with this first track. Uh, one of my favorites on the album, Subliminal. As soon as I hear that accordion, I'm like, you know, okay, this this is still a They Might Be Giants album. Uh, my, my fears about any lineup changes are, are pretty assuaged at this point. And then the world's biggest drums come in. Yeah, the the mixing on this album is really beefy. I like it a lot. Like the it makes the first four albums sound so kind of thin and like underproduced. Yeah, they have that uh, the gated reverb thing going on some of the drums, so they, they they have a real big punch to them, but they don't carry. Yeah, it's a very '80s production thing to have on a '90s uh, album. Yeah, I get I get I get a lot that they're like uh, influenced by kind of like '80s power pop and that kind of stuff in terms of like producing a full band. Mm-hmm. This was before they started their relationship with Pet. Dillett, right? I think Pat Dillett was on this album, wasn't he? Yeah, the producer was Paul Fox. Okay, so there's pre-Pat Dillett. Yeah. This is probably one of my favorite They Might Be Giants openers, though. I really like how it, it almost feels like, like it's about the band's songs themselves, because there's always so much going on, like, under the surface with their work that you really need to dig into. Yeah. And I like that they come right out of the gate, like, beginning this second era, almost, with a song that kind of speaks to their, their still their intentions. I also just love that the song opens with car crash imagery. Yes, so good. Which is all over this album. There's like three different songs that have car crash imagery on it. But like most notedly, most notedly this one and end of the tour, which is the closer. Those first lyrics though are so good. As I got hit by a car, there was a message for me. As I went through the windshield, I noticed something. I really love that. Yeah. yeah. Noticing something subliminal. It's really kind of like dreamlike and psychedelic feeling. Definitely. There's also something really tongue in cheek about I noticed something while like, you know, the loudest and most possibly distracting things ever is currently happening. And I noticed the subliminal detail at that exact point. <laughs> it's great. It just makes me picture John Manel like getting hit by a car and things going into slow motion as he has like some kind of epiphany as he goes through the windshield. Really great. Mm-hmm. And then like the second iteration of the verse is while he's lying in bed, there was a message through me while as i went through the pillow and that really like solidifies the dreamlike nature of the song yep and then at the very end of the song uh the last two uh stanzas of the uh 
of the song are repeated backwards. Which sounds really good. I almost wish they had just done the whole song. It kind of is like that old cliche about uh, the Beatles putting subliminal stuff in their tracks by just saying things backwards. Yeah, the backmasking. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it sounds really cool just because, you know... It was done on a tape. Yeah. Which just sounds better than flipping something in Audacity. There's something about, like, the the nature of, like, you know, spooling the tape backwards as you're playing it. Yeah, the analog quality to it. I definitely agree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really, really like the sound of it. Yeah. And I just, I love them basically singing the stare into the subliminal stuff in rounds. Yeah, again, that really that really feels so anthemic coming from, like, this band in particular. The main thing I always think of when I think of this song is when I was getting into the fucking Green Brothers in, like, 2007. (laughs) One of their banners, like, the little banners that had the top of their heads on it, uh, there was one that was, like, doing the lyrics of Subliminal. (laughs) And I think of that every goddamn time. Oh, the Vlog Brothers, yeah. Blast from the goddamn past. It was like they were specifically targeting you, Matt. Yeah, no, they were specifically targeting me. I mean, they are noted fans of the band, so. Yeah, a good number of popular online nerd personalities are fans of They Might Be Giants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just, I feel like that's like a, a significant source of their like more modern fan base is probably the Vlog Brothers. That seems legitimate to me, yeah. Yeah, lots of crossover. Yeah, yeah, because, like, we, we, we got in through, like, Neil Cicerega, but, like, that forum wasn't very big. There wasn't that many people on it. Yeah, no. We're not a significant contingent of the internet, even though we are everywhere. <laughs> All right, let's talk about track two, Snail Shell. What do you guys think of this one? rips dude i love it the lyrics always seem to me like um there's this character who's maybe the narrator of this song kind of being put back in their place uh like by someone with power over them but like being thankful for that i i I always i always saw it as someone who's kind of uncomfortable in the situation they're in yeah and like someone is basically putting them back in their comfort zone sure yeah i gotta say i'm not a big fan of this one and i read that like i I don't know what it is about it maybe it's just too a little like repetitive it grates on me a little but i read that they like were hoping that this song would match the success of birdhouse in your soul which feels like something that could never happen to no. me. No. <laughs> like, Birdhouse and this song are in two completely separate, like, dimensions for me, personally. I mean, they they seem to like it a lot, because they, they play it a lot. They do. I don't know, man. Maybe it just doesn't work for me for some reason. Maybe because I just always picture an actual snail. <laughs> I like the metaphorical reads you guys give it, though. Yeah. Yeah. There's that line about uh, the position at your feet where I stand. Um, the, word, the word back does a lot of heavy lifting in the imagery. Um, like, instead of just being put in your snail shell, you're being put back in your snail shell. Yeah, that, that, that kind of carries the metaphor a little bit, because it's, it's almost implying, like, you know, they'd want, that's where they came from, that's where they want to go back to. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I can see how, uh, the repetitiveness would grate on you, especially if you're, well, something as nasally as the way that John Linnell says the word snail shell. Snail shell! Snail shell! <laughs> 
To this song's credit, I do think it makes great use of the new full band arrangements because everybody sounds like on fire here. Oh yeah. It's like a really fantastic sounding song. Really good bass lines on this one. For being a song that is sung by John Linnell, it actually reads to me a lot more like a Flansburg track just because of like how how hard rocking it is, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it kind of, I feel like it deals in similar themes that Flansburg likes to play with, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a it's a very very garage rock sound. Like we're going to we're going to be all over the place with the with the genres on this album. But that's like the best suited one for this. Yeah. Probably its best companion would be a Flans track, which would be Take Out the Trash from The Else. Sure. I feel like they go really, really well together. I love The Else. The Else is very good. The Else is good. I'm very excited to get to it in a hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's get to um let's get to the next song though, Sleeping in the Flowers. I like this one a lot. feels like a definitive Flans track. Yes. Oh, yeah. Longest track on the album at four minutes and 30 seconds. I do think it's a little too long, but I don't, I don't know. It's a standout in like the first couple tracks for sure, I think. Yeah. Yeah, especially when they have like the horn and drums breakdown. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. Oh, that's good. That's good. The horns are right up front there. Mm-hmm. It was it was really good to see, uh, to see They Might Be Giants tour with a horn player recently. They're, they're touring, uh, I think, maybe still with uh, Kurt Ram. Yeah, they still got Kurt Ram. Who is just a really, really, really good uh, horn player. The last time they played this song live was in 1998, which is a huge shame. For sure. This would be a fun one to, to bring back, especially when they have the horns around. But I've actually, I noticed uh, while looking through the track listing of this album, a lot of the songs on this album have not seen recent live play. And I think it's uh, it's probably part and parcel with the fact that the members of the band who were present for this album sessions didn't stay in the band very long because they said it was a pretty collaborative process in the studio and they probably wrote a lot of their own parts. Yeah, there's a, a couple of songs on the Wikipedia listing for this album uh, that actually have a couple of the of the backing band members as writing credits. Yeah. And so, like, just thinking of it, like, from like a uh, like a legacy perspective, it, I guess it just is weird for them to teach those parts to to new players. I could see that, yeah. Sure. From what I can tell, there wasn't really like bad blood with the other guys, but I think they wanted probably more collaborative roles than they did end up having in the in the creation of the music, which is probably a weird thing for the Johns, having you know run the ship by themselves for ten years, ten years plus at this point. Yeah, I do wonder if there were any kind of growing pains that came with expanding the band. Mm-hmm. The guitar tremolo in the verses is one of my favorite things in this song. It's like kind of grungy feeling. Which I guess was a contemporaneous uh, thing happening in music to this album. 
Uh, it's it's much harder sounding than the guitar sounds on the previous albums, which I kind of appreciate. I think this is very much the They Might Be Giants grunge album. Yeah, I can see that. That makes sense to me for some reason. Sure. What do you think about like just like the contrast between the way the chorus and verses go? I'm not really sure what to make of it because I, I don't have a very good read on where they're going with the lyrics on the chorus. Well, Matt, I know something you like to do preparing for podcasts sometimes is you go through like the genius pages and you're often frustrated by how many of how many of those interpretations are like drug centered uh-huh <laughs> um according to flansburg himself though this song is about getting stoned in central park <laughs> <laughs> this is a they might be giant song about drugs well there we go yeah god the discussion page on this might be a wiki for this song is full of people that are like nah flans is just flans is just fucking with us it's not really about that <laughs> He would never. Yeah, no. I do think the verses are a little too slow. Yeah. Yeah, that probably in part and parcel with it being like a four and a half minute song. Mm-hmm. Just it kind of makes it feel like it drags. Because nothing drags about like the horn section and ska drums going on in the later half of the song. No. This is one of the, the good loneliness uh, tracks on this album. It's kind of uh, about not being able to express your feelings to the person that you care about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bunch of nerds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I think Tell My Boss That I've Been Fired is a very Flansburg lyric. <laughs> oh, yeah. He has, like, this thing about office culture that just is always around. Yeah. Let's get on to the next song, though, Unrelated Thing. Do you smile because I'm funny, said the man. I wasn't joking and I meant the thing I said. Not at all. The organ in the background of this one is really is really pretty to me. It reminds me of kind of 70s vocalist pop. I'm a big fan of 60s and 70s style organ arrangements, and I like when bands aren't afraid to shy away from them. I feel like the organ has become underutilized in pop and rock music these days. Yeah. If you guys haven't had a chance to do it yet, I would recommend listening to the, the demo version of this track. I didn't get to seek those out. Is this one where it's like super different? This one, it is in a completely different key. Oh. Okay. It is in, uh, it's in a G key instead of the C key, and it makes it sound w- even more country than it already does, despite the fact that, like, the original, like, the album version has a steel guitar on it. <laughs> and I actually, I think I like it a lot better, even though it's longer, and this is, like, one of my least favorite tracks on the album. Yeah, this is one that I would cut, although I still do enjoy it. Like, most of the They Might Be Giant songs I cut from albums, it definitely has its merits. I was saying in an earlier episode, it's like, man, I, I kind of miss them doing their country pastiche, and no, they're still doing it. Yeah. It's around. <laughs> you just gotta look for it. Mm-hmm. Linnell loves to write songs about couples that don't pay attention to each other. <laughs> um, this It's basically, it's almost they'll need a crane all over again. Yeah, all those songs might be about that one couple. Yeah, this is like, this is earlier on in that relationship. Yeah. I don't have a ton to say about this one, though. Do you guys have anything more to say before we move on? Uh, not really. Yeah, I'm good. All right, let's talk about AKA Driver then. This one has like a little bit of a story to it.
was originally called uh, NyQuil Driver, but they ended up changing the name because NyQuil is a registered trademark name, and uh, they didn't want to worry about getting into any kind of weird legal issues. NyQuil wasn't into the idea of promoting <laughs> driving while on NyQuil, I think, was the problem. Big surprise. Well, they, they didn't even, like, approach them. They were very, like, reserved nerd about this. They kind of just said, ah, let's not worry about it. Yeah, very non-confrontational. But speaking of, thi- speaking of things with narcotic effects, podcast beer time. <laughs> so there was a promotional uh, piece of software uh, that was distributed on diskette um, for Macintosh, uh, for black and white Macintosh computers um, for this album. Um and it had MIDI, like, sequenced, uh, like, 30-second snippets of each of the songs uh, on it. And the song was still called NyQuil Driver in that in that piece of promo material. Mm-hmm. They did keep it in the lyrics, too. They do. Well, yeah, they were even saying in the, it was like, lyrics would be protected by, like, fair use, but using it in a form that's, like, a registered trademark, like, song titles uh, would not be. Right, yeah, I think I remember reading that, too. This is one of my favorite uh, Flansburg songs. Um... It's got a really, really good solo in the middle, um, and to me, the the kind of energy of it almost captures the feeling of kind of road rage or being anxious behind the wheel. I can't believe that John Flansburg walked so ludicrous could run. <laughs> this is literally just move, bitch, but by they might be giants. A little bit, yeah. yeah. Flans doing 100 on the highway. <laughs> if you're doing the speed limit, get the fuck out of his way. <laughs> I never really locked into this one before, though, but, like, preparing for this episode, I really came around to it, and, like, this is a jam. The solo, like you were talking about, is great. It's got, like, a really cool vibe throughout it. It almost reminds me of, like, a Dramamine by Modest Mouse. Sure. Maybe because of the subject matter, but, like, it, yeah. it's it's definitely got some Modest Mouse vibes, I think. The harmonies on the, the Hey NyQuil Driver part are really, really good. Yeah. This one is uh, actually listed as a collaboration between the Johns, Tony Mimoni, and uh, Brian Doherty. So I, I think it's something that kind of came in, like, in a live setting prior to it actually being in a recorded setting. And as such, the last time it was played was 1997. Oh, wow. Yep. I also read that it like kind of came about as a live thing. There's a quote from Brian Doherty saying that it came about while on stage in St. Louis as Flans implored the audience to come to our gig the next night in Chicago as just a few days drive away. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, since we haven't really been getting on these yet, this one is ranked number 153 out of 908 songs on the wiki. We have some high placements on this album. This isn't really one of them. It's it's higher, but... Yeah, I'll be interested to hear which is like the highest ranking one on this record. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if it's this next one. I should be allowed to think. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical. I should be allowed to glue my poster. I should be allowed to think. I should be allowed to glue my poster. I should be allowed to think. I should be allowed to think. I should be allowed to think. Surprisingly not, but this one is number 51, so it's pretty up there. Gotcha. This is maybe my favorite on the record. I think this is a great piece of satire. Oh, yeah. It's one of Linnell's big moments here mm-hmm. on this album. Yeah. This is one of my favorite. This is like one of the best pieces of satire on the album. I can really see someone taking this song super seriously yeah. as like a as a as a freeze peach defending song. But it's clearly like saying how ridiculous the idea of the, the narrator being censored actually is. Yeah. I mean, this song is like perfect for 2019 because it's like about a character who 
thinks his right to free speech should like protect his ability to say like whatever he wants. Well, literally shoot my mouth off the lyrics of this song. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, like quoting the Allen Ginsberg poem, Howl, as if he's big shit. So good. Do you think the Johns were like, you know, art kids into poetry or anything like that? I'm not, I'm not really sure. <laughs> <laughs> Man, who'd have thunk it, huh? I just remember one time I saw that someone had written the opening lines of the poem. So, like, the same lines that are used in the song. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by magic, starving, hysterical. And directly next to it, someone had glued a poster. And it was very, <laughs> it was very being on campus in 2014. I should be allowed to glue my poster. Change my mind. My favorite lyric, though, on this song definitely reminds me of, like, podcasting culture. I should be allowed to shoot my mouth off. I should have a call-in show. Yeah, yeah. Everyone needs to hear the dumb shit I'm saying. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> this song got a dramatic reading by Andy Richter uh, in the documentary Gigantic. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Uh, my favorite parts of the line are, I should be allowed to blurt the merest idea if by random random whim when occurs to me if necessary leave paper stains on the gray utility pole (laughs) (laughs) so like it's the the only people who who paper posters on utility poles are bands and nazis or combinations of the two yeah so many white identitarian groups putting those up because they they think they should be allowed to think i would definitely have pushed this as like the single over snail shell i think though oh absolutely i don't think they have a good idea of what's popular (laughs) yeah but this like this feels like a good song in like the lineage of like uh the last album singles like i pound drum i and statue got me high it seems like any time a day might be giant song gets popular it's by mistake yeah like because it like just happened to be in a tiny tunes or something right i also love the lyrics i am not allowed to ever come up with a single original thought i am not allowed to meet the criminal government agent who oppresses me and anyone who hears that line and thinks that this song is defending them is ridiculous yeah that whole bridge is really great uh it's yeah 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 because just the way it's sung is so perfect yeah i am not allowed you come up with he's got his own personal nsa agent even though the nsa i don't think existed at this point (laughs) not in its current form anyway i'm a big fan of this next song too and i feel like it works for similar reasons extra savoir faire Yes. Yeah, so John Linnell just gave us his self-involved douchebag song, and now Flansburg <laughs> is giving us his. It's great. He's having a lot of fun here. This guy is so up his own ass, and it's so beautiful. This has always been one of my favorites. The opening line is incredible. When I walk down the street, most guys look like elves. <laughs> I don't mean to put them down, but they do. But they do. He's literally Chad walking down the street seeing nothing but virgins around. (laughs) It's so good. And he really sells it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's no word in English for my style. I'm imagining that this this is a pastiche of just dozens upon dozens of guys that they met throughout their years in, like, art schools and band scenes. Flansburg introduced it at a show in 1994 as about a guy on steroids. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, it's a really f- funny way to think about it, because I, I, I would see it more as, like, the kind of intellectual douchebag. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Even though, even with that, that first line, like, 
giving like the size difference. But either way, it's like it's someone who thinks way, way too highly of himself. Mm -hmm. He knows just what to do when the ladies come around. Right, because savoir is a French term meaning the ability to say or do the right or graceful thing. Yeah. And he's got extra that. Yeah, literally translated savoir faire is just like know-how or knowing how. I think the bass line here is... There's no bass guitar in this song. It's all bass clarinet. Yeah, that's what Linnell's doing the whole time. Really? Interesting. I didn't know that was him on the clarinet. Yeah. Yeah, he, he plays a good, he plays a mean bass clarinet. Huh. He pops it out at shows every once in a while, too. Nice. He loves him some woodwind instruments. I read that Flensburg wrote this on his wife's ukulele while playing it upside down. <laughs> Tracks so much. I don't know if he meant he was holding the ukulele upside down or if his entire body was upside down. <laughs> I like to think it's the latter. The latter sounds better to me. Like, I'm just imagining him, his, like, calves resting on a couch and then like him hanging off the rest of the couch just kind of upside down yeah something like that the other thing that i like about the instrumentation on this one is that uh i think the drums are played with brushes yeah the percussion is very light it's kind of jazzy it'd be funny if they just replaced it entirely with finger snaps yeah that would work that would work I think. <laughs> like this was a poetry reading it's specifically like the poetry reading in uh, an extremely goofy movie <laughs> it feels like it could be in like a musical or something like an antagonist's song oh yeah absolutely I, f- I feel like they they fit with theater it works totally they have written for a musical theater before they did write a song for the spongebob musical lest we forget why hasn't there been a whole they might be giants musical though i feel like that's something that would have made sense for them to do already in their career I'm sure someone's done it, but I'm very surprised that they haven't. They're just too busy always on the album grind. Yeah, they they don't rest for long enough to do it. No, Dial a Song is proof that they never rest. They've never rested before. Let's talk about this next song, Why Must I Be Sad. weird fucking song yeah this one has never really stuck with me this is the alice cooper song where they drop a bunch of alice cooper references i think there are 13 alice cooper songs named throughout the lyrics yeah all of which are from five consecutive albums of his oh fun fact the last time this song was played was at gen con in 1998 gen con is just happens to be the weekend we're recording this i think that might have been either the year or close to the year that my parents went because my mom really wanted to meet Adrian Paul from Highlander. <laughs> but yeah, that was uh, last performed in 1998. So continuing the, thr- the the trend. I don't like this song. Yeah, I can tell you that there are 13 Alice Cooper references in it, but I can't really tell you off the top of my head what it sounds like. The main crux of this song kind of sounds like like a millennial Twitter sentiment. Like I, the whole like I love dying and being dead thing. I do love dying and being dead. Yeah, but it doesn't need to be four minutes long. <laughs> the music is actually kind of minor key and sad, like which is a pretty contrasting thing for for Linnell, because um, he normally like does the whole juxtaposition of like upbeat and major key with the dark lyrics. Yeah, yeah. I think that that might be why it just kind of sinks for me. Yeah, like this would absolutely be a cut track if I were resequencing this album. Like, no question. This one would go on Back to Skull. The only ones I even remember hearing while listening to the song were No More Mr. Nice Guy and I Love the Dead. The rest of them, they just kind of floated by me, I guess. Because I think I just dissociated in the middle of the song. (laughs) And I just don't really know much about Alice Cooper. He seems like a cool guy. Yeah. I know he's really excited whenever school lets out. (laughs) (laughs) And he was in the Wayne World movie. Yeah, he had a very good scene in Wayne's World. Where he goes over the the colonization history of Milwaukee. (laughs) It's true. 
What a good movie. Unfortunately, I'd cut this next song too. Spy? Why is this on the album? <laughs> God. Uh, me, me into like our, our chat earlier today while I was listening to the album. Uh, it's like <laughs> me listening to Spy. Why is this here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I couldn't help but agree. Uh, this is another one that has a different demo version. Um, and I think the most notable difference is the demo version is a full 36 seconds shorter, which I appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the exact differences were between them, but I, it just, it worked better for me shorter. Flansburg loves doing like genre pastiches like this. Yeah. This is, is supposed to, I think, sound like the music you'd hear in like 1970s spy TV shows. Mm-hmm. It's still a live show staple. They play it all the time. 498 known performances. Only out of one of the four shows I've been to. It's usually used as an excuse to showcase the band's chops in a way. Yeah, I can see that working. I read that they always end it with like an improvisatory thing. Yeah, the last time I saw them do it, Flansburg stood with his back to the audience, front lit, so it was just his silhouette, kind of like in Fantasia. And <laughs> he just kind of like gestured to each part of the stage where... The, uh, the band member in question would just kind of play something improv for as long as he was being pointed at. And then, like, even just looking at the lyrics, it's just so straightforward. It feels really phoned in for their genre experiments. Like, if you want to be a spy, then you must really see. And you must really see if you want to be a spy like me. Someone in the interpretations called that one of their best couplets. (laughs) What? Which I found very funny. I.E., you have to see things as they really are. And it's like, yeah, that's the line. (laughs) just didn't really <laughs> land for me and they would do the spy pastiche so much better when they did the theme song for dr evil for the second uh, austin powers movie which is a real good track and sung by robin goldwasser i think yes it was do you remember youth culture killed my dog that also has some cool spy music in it yeah just like randomly between the verses <laughs> yeah the dun, 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 dun. Oh, i think it's like a, the direct guitar line is that dun 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 dun? It definitely sounds like it. Yeah. But yeah, I, I would agree that this is their weakest spy song. Out of the several spy songs they have. <laughs> I think it's just kind of a, a kind of weak metaphor for someone who lets their life get in the way of uh, their relationships and finding love. Mm-hmm. I like that read of it, definitely. Some of their songs are just literal, which is always really funny <laughs> to think about uh, the idea of just, you know, interpreting something that was meant to be literal, but, you know, death of the author and all that. We've got another one of those coming up later on this album, which I'm excited about. But first we have Oh Do Not Forsake Me, another song that I'm not, like, particularly fond of. Oh, do not forsake me, my indolent friends. Oh, do not forsake me, though you know I must spend all my darkest hours talking like this. For I am 1,000 years old. Not a great run going on here. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, what's... What do you what do you like about it? I just kind of like barbershoppy singing. Okay, it, it does it for me. This is another one where I would recommend that you check out the demo version. Flans sings that one, right? One thousand years old. Sure, you think that's old. One 
Flan sings that one. Uh, there are strings as the backing. The vocals are all in one channel and then the, the arrangement's on the other. And I think it has a really neat effect to it. Yeah. I'd definitely be interested in singing if I like that one more, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's around the same length, so it's not significantly different. So they, they actually did make demos for like every song on the album, but most of them are very similar because they, they, they really streamlined the process later to make it so that they weren't spending as much time on these kind of demos. They, they hired an acapella group called Hudson Shad to record this song. Um, and I like the idea that when you get to be 1,000 years old, you just start talking in an operatic baritone. God, I fucking wish. I'm going to sound like this forever. I am 1,000 years, years old. I cannot do that note. <laughs> Not a chance. I don't think it overstays its welcome. It could have been one of their like minute and a half songs, maybe. Sure. I might have liked it better if it wasn't coming directly after two songs I already wasn't super into. It just feels like continuing that stretch. Yeah. I really like the way this next song takes us out of it, though. No one knows my plan. This is a great one. Oh, yeah. almost feels like a like a salsa dance song yeah i read on the wiki that it's quote pretty much standard for everybody congo to be used as an intro to this song when they play it live (laughs) yeah and 250 known performances this is another one that uh has transcended and remained a live staple where is this one ranked uh no one knows my plan is ranked number 15 so it's one of the highest on the album cool doesn't surprise me two tracks on the album are ranked higher than it and i'll tell you when we get to each of them this is one that got performed uh on some tv show i don't remember exactly which one but the live performance from that show of this song is very good <laughs> this has some of my favorite they might be giants lyrics though i love the the part that goes when i made a shadow on my window shade they called the police and testified but they're like the people chained up in the cave in the allegory of the people in the cave by the greek guy (laughs) the greek guy of course being plato yeah of course them relegating pluto to the greek guy really reminds me of the greatest man that ever lived by weezer when he refers to shakespeare as someone (laughs) it gives the image of someone just sitting in a prison cell philosophizing to himself but never actually getting anything done yeah this this is just a super villain in a cage and apparently the, uh, an instrumental version of this was used as the opening theme for uh, cartoon planet that space ghost show did you guys ever watch that i've never watched that i do i am interested in finding this instrumental version because the instrumental for this song is slap city yeah it is like it is it is some it is just a real good driving track some really really good use of horns yeah i can really imagine it going off live i like understand why it's continued to be a staple it's one of the highest rated songs on the album so it's a popular one next we've got a uh, dirt bike i really enjoy this one too John Flansburg introduced, I'm reading this right off the wiki, John Flansburg introduced this song at the first show it was played at by saying, here comes a brand new song, 
This song is about a fictitious rock band that became a phenomenon called Dirt Bike. It's the story of their phenomenon. Yeah, really interesting. In a 1994 appearance on Good Morning America, Flansburg said this song is about a kid sitting in a town and there's this religious cult passing through the country and he's just thinking about what it would be like getting swept up by the cult. Here comes the dirt bike Beware of the dirt bike Cause I hear they're coming to our town They got plans from everyone And now I hear they're over their sophomore jinx So you had better check it Sure sounds like two completely different interpretations of the lyrics there, John. <laughs> I can see how one would lead to the other. He he uh, he definitely knows what all his songs are about. And this is one where I, I dove into the interpretations page a little bit. Considering the content of the song, I think it's important to point out Dirt Bike rhymes with Third Reich. <laughs> Man, it sure does. What's the, that's Godwin's Law, right? That all uh, internet comments will eventually turn into discussions of Hitler? Yeah. Yep. That one made it really fast. Who would have thought? Yeah. <laughs> It was like the first thing on the page. Sometimes I think Flansburg just puts together words that sound cool, and I think that's absolutely okay to me. That The one thing that, that they had that supported the theory was, and now I hear they're over their sophomore jinx. Yeah. The second one didn't go so well, but the third one. <laughs> so you had better check it out. All hail the dirt bike, philosopher dirt bike. I'm, I think this kind of works. Yeah, it does. Yeah, the sophomore jinx thing really ties it together, doesn't it? Yeah, with the uh, with just with that interpretation, I'm gonna I should credit the person who actually wrote that. It was written by Sheep. Thanks, Sheep. Thanks. Thanks, Sheep. This song has always reminded me of the Mountain Goats for some reason. Like the idea of a song about like being in like a small suburban town with like a cult passing through it really sounds like something John Darnielle would write. Yeah, that's very much in his territory. And this is like probably some of the best use of horns on the album too. I really love the extended intro. It's beautiful. Oh yeah, yeah. The uh, A version of this got recorded for uh, a more recent EP uh, called They Might Be Giants Other Thing Brass Band. Yes, 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 yes. That one's really good. I suggest having that version on hand too. Yeah. And uh, this is one that was uh, for a while retired along with other songs from this album, but has been on set lists as recently as 2016. I'd enjoy seeing this one live, especially now that they always bring the horns around. Yeah, the, some of the shows that it was on were called Horntoberfest, <laughs> so they just had extra horns with them. I think that was when they were doing like their Music Hall of Williamsburg residency, where they were playing there like once a month for a whole year, because that was the thing they did for a while. One of the early They Might Be Giants shows that I went to um, was billed as a every album show. So they were going to play songs from every album in their discography, which up until that point, uh, I think, went up to the else. And uh, oh wow, they didn't play any songs from John Henry. <laughs> Ouch. Rude. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess given how many of things have been retired from rotation, then that's just going to happen if they're not thinking too hard about it. John Flansburg came out uh, maybe a half hour after the show was over to do autographs because uh, he was still doing that at the time. Yeah. And uh, I think somebody who was with me, it might have been our friend Alex, um, asked him, like, w- w- there were no songs from John Henry. What's up with that? And he was like, yeah, I kind of realized that after I wrote the set list and I was hoping nobody would notice. <laughs> Like, did they not think very highly of this album either? I don't know. Because they, I mean, they reissued it before they reissued a bunch of their other albums. Yeah, I've got, I've got the vinyl right here. I've got the vinyl. I've got the vinyl. <laughs> it's a tuning fork segment crossover. It's, it's a cool, it's a cool package. The, the gatefold has all of the, 
the artwork of the kids inside of it, like sandwiched between the uh, the lyrics for all the songs. I imagine that Flans has a lot of fun, like redesigning album artwork packages for Gatefold. Yeah, because like he has such a huge insight into design, given his like his it's his trade. He's also a big vinyl nerd. Oh yeah, like half of his Instagram posts are him talking about a record he's listening to. All the reissues are on the fancy 180 gram vinyl too. Yeah. Do you guys want to move on to the next track, Destination Moon? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, I think this is an, uh, another really good one. Yeah, this one is is a lot of fun. I, I like the interpretation. It's basically just about being too sick to get out of bed to go to work, but trying to do it anyway. Right. Yeah, I have a quote from Linnell that says this song is about being really really sick when you think you're not. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just like I'll show you. And I, I really like the by rocket to the moon by airplane to the rocket by taxi to the airport by front door to the taxi. It's like increasingly shorter distances that you're not able to transverse. That's great. And yeah, it's just you you become it's like it's just a, a step at a time. But you know each of those steps are gonna get longer and longer. My favorite line is uh, "Thank you for the card with the cartoon nurse." But you see, there's nothing wrong with me. That's really good. I also I love the way directly after that he sings. You think that's what you think that's what they, they all say. Really good. Yeah, the 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 like syncopation of each of the words is really really good. He doesn't mm-hmm. he doesn't flow them at all. He really really enunciates and punches each of those words. That's always been a big strength of Linnell's, I think. Yeah. One thing with they might be giants albums, like they enunciate the hell out of words most of the time. The lyrics are important. You got to know what they are. You don't usually need lyrics booklets. The uh, the bridge is really good. Um, soon the man who sweeps the room brings a secret telegram. Commence official interplanetary exploration. Yeah, where else do you see lyrics like that in a song? Nowhere, damn it, nowhere. And apparently by Rocket to a Moon is a song by Raymond Scott, uh, who they've earlier quoted in uh, Rhythm Section 1 ad. They included that little snippet of his song Powerhouse. Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. I forgot about that. Raymond Scott's got a lot of cool stuff. He's worth looking into. And Destination Moon is a 1950s film about space travel. A lot of trivia. Just packing a lot of uh, like esoteric references as they do. I'm sure as kids growing up in the 60s, they had to watch a lot of like space travel film strips in school. And I think that kind of translates throughout the early work, given that Apollo 18 was supposed to be... What, what was the official tie-in that was that album? It was like National Space Year or something, right? Which is very funny to me. Oh, they're such fucking nerds. I love them so much. <laughs> they're great. I feel like I don't say this enough. I really do love this band. <laughs> uh, this is one of the tracks that is ranked above No One Knows My Plan. This is number 12 out of 908. I don't know if I like it better than No One Knows My Plan, but it's close. I honestly, I like this song. I think it's bonkers that it's number 12. Let's talk about this next track, A Self Called Nowhere. I'm sitting on the curb of the empty parking lot of the star where they let me play the organ. I'm waiting for my ride, but I want to wait inside the 
And I'm looking down the stairwell At the vanishing dawn and the map of the spot Let me take you This this might be my favorite one on the album, um, and I didn't get to see a live performance of it until recently. Um, they played they now play this uh, occasionally during uh, a section of their current live show called uh, Quiet Storm, which is just uh, the two Johns and uh, Marty Beller on a stool next to them with uh, a little MIDI drum pad. Yeah, yeah, they think they did that at the show I was at. And. Uh, Linnell sings the song with an exaggerated Boston accent. Yeah, that's I love that. More than three quarters of the performances of this song were last year, in 2018. The vast majority of them. Otherwise hadn't played since 1998. It came back with a vengeance. They just found a way to make it work, I guess. Wild. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's why I was so excited about it. Yeah. I um, never really cared for this one. I'm not sure what it was about it. Like, it's, I really do like the lyrics, just looking at them. I also like the Boston accent that he affects for the whole song. The Baston accent. The store where they let me play the organ. Yeah, and it's also just a song that's like heavily based in like the kind of think of the mind kind of insanity lyrics that John Linnell likes to get to every once in a while. A lot of head imagery in this one. This is another track that has a noted demo version. The demo version has more horns throughout the song than the John Henry version, and Linnell's voice is not altered during the chorus, which I actually prefer. I'll have to look that up. The chorus is my favorite part of the song, I think. I think like um, Sleeping in the Flowers, I think the verses are a little too slow, but the chorus really takes off, and it feels very, like, monolithic. Like, this is a huge chorus that just keeps kind of growing bigger and bigger as it goes on. That's definitely how I feel about it. It's a cool one, and another one that makes really good use of the new full band arrangements. They do build a lot. This next one, though, feels almost more like a throwback to their early material, though, I think. Meet James Ensor. Meet James Ensor, Belgium's famous painter. Dig him up and shake his hand. Appreciate the man. Before there were junk stores, before there was junk, he lived with his mother and the torments of Christ. The world was transformed, a crowd gathered round, pressed against his window so they could be the first to meet James Ensor. Yes. I like this one a lot, but it feels like it'd be more at home on like Apollo 18 than on this record, I think. Yeah, it's like an edutainment song. Yeah. Flansburg said he just wanted to write a song because he appreciates James Ensor and wants people to look into him because he's a good painter. <laughs> I guess that's it. I'm a big fan of James Ensor's work. Yeah. He does that really great painting of two skeletons fighting over like a sardine. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> before there were junk stores, before there was junk, he lived with his mother and the torments of Christ. <laughs> That's a great lyric. Oh, yeah. It kind of has a similar vibe to a later uh, historical anthem of theirs, James K. Polk. It's because they both have James in it. They're both about historical Jameses. I like this one a lot, though. It doesn't overstay its welcome. Next up, we've got Thermostat, a song which I don't like as much, unfortunately. one grew on me it, it took a little bit it kind of just blended into the background uh the first few times i 
I listen to this album. Yeah, I mean, I don't dislike it, but it blends in. It's got a really good hook on it. The turn it up, turn it down. I really like that, and I really like the trumpets on it. This is the least performed song on the album, with only seven known performances. Huh. I feel like they, 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 I guess they just think they need way more horns to do it. They possibly don't like the song. Huh. It's very possible. Uh, it is uh, rated 286 out of 908, which is like like mid-level, like not too high, not too low. Yeah. There's a song that's got kind of similar thematic content to this, which isn't a They Might Be Giants song, but it is, surprise, surprise for me talking about music, a Depeche Mode song <laughs> um, called Get the Balance Right. Um, which the themes just talk about, you know, how everything needs to be in moderation in your life. Mm-hmm. I like the um, the dueling interpretations that kind of happen on this one. One is just like the increasing mechanicization of the world is is like causing you to lose control and like just like striving for that last piece of control. Sure. And then the other one is just saying it's bad to have so much control over the minutia of life because it's going to drive you nuts having to constantly adjust it. And I think like both those interpretations are valid for this song because it's like it's it seems to be someone who has some sort of problem with control. Well, dads dads famously love to have control over the thermostat is the thing. Exactly. This is this is dads in the thermostat. <laughs> That's the whole song. Yep. True dad rock. This is the dad rock song cuz it's the song about the thermostat. <laughs> They may as well have written a song about having, like, a beer on their grill. Turn No, no, you, you can't turn it up. You're going to overcook the meat. It'll dry out. Turn it down. Oh, no, now the, now, the, now the brats are getting cold. Turn it up. It's, it's, it's a companion to the, uh, the Tim and Eric Ridged Chips uh, sketch. Perfect. It's just uh, Tim Heidecker's character from that singing this song. I do love to hear Matt Ribeiro say Ridged Chips. Sour cream and onion dip as long as you have some Ridged Chips. Move on to window. Look at all the people in the window. I'm checking out the people in the window. I was uncomfortable. Now I'm uncomfortable. The trouble I encountered when I thought it was, it was a window. This is Linnell going, going ham on some vocal stunting. I can't really tell if his voice is actually pitched down or if he's really singing that low. I know he can, but it's saying on it said on the wiki that the song has been slowed down to a different pitch. Okay. Yeah, they said it was probably recorded in E, but it plays in D. So it's just barely pitched down. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a really tiny song, but it's also really densely produced. The drums sound giant. The the guitars almost sound like a My Bloody Valentine song. Yeah, there is like a shoegaze quality to it. Yeah. I can't believe they made a one-minute shoegaze track. <laughs> the 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 uh, clip of it from that Macintosh diskette is also pretty good. I imagine that would sound like a vaporwave track or something. I think it's just uh, the the main melody of it with the occasional vocal sample of John Linnell saying "window, window, window." So I really like this next one, "Out of Jail."
This one's a, a solid Flans track. This one's a cool late album rocker. This is just like a story track, right? It doesn't. Yeah. I couldn't really. I couldn't really like pull an allegory out of it while trying to read the lyrics. Yeah. The interpretations are just saying something like, you know, making a promise that you don't necessarily understand when you're making it. So, wish I'd gotten to know her before I fell in love. Say she's to blame. She's the man in a cautionary tale. But I swear I'd be true, and I'll swear and I'll swear till kittens out of jail. Being like really young and making that kind of decision and making that kind of commitment, I can I can try to interpret that as something like, uh, you know, making a commitment before you fully understand the ramifications of it, which you know that's that's society. I just I'm putting on my Joker makeup right now and uh, and talking about this society that we're in. So that's that, that's 18 tracks of the album done. We are almost, we are in the home stretch right now. Almost there. We just got to talk about uh, Stumpbox. Stompbox fucking slaps, man. I love this song. Yeah. I really like some of the lyrics, like uh, kill, 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 kill me now, free the demon, hear the ceaseless screaming, tear it from my heart. You know what this song is? What's that? The song's Twitter. <laughs> the song is Twitter. Sure. Yeah. Twitter, speak my thought, vent these voices from the dark, shout, 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 scream it out, blast your missive, tell the wordless message, little Twitter, tear it from my heart. <laughs> wow. It's Twitter. Uncanny. And yet, I almost feel like it's a companion to I should be allowed to think. This is like the like the raging internal id about it. Like I need to need to get this out no matter what. It's not nece- a wordless message saying it's not even anything necessarily important. I love that. This to me is a companion to uh, you'll miss me from Lincoln oh in the in the vo- in the way they're doing weird voices yeah and also just kind of the the presentation of it it's it's one of those little genre experiments that they do sometimes yeah yeah it's recorded like a punk track yeah the interpretations are really funny because it, it's like yeah they're just making fun of punk because they don't think punk is good and it's like how do you listen to They Might Be Giants and don't think they think punk is good? Yeah, that's a wild conclusion to come to. Have you listened to John Flansburg say literally anything in his life? <laughs> yeah. In making fun of distortion pedal abusive songs in which the musician is trying to create an angsty, artsy, or otherwise expressive sound, but the product just sounds messy and pours the poison in my ear. Calm down, buddy. People, uh, I don't think are are super big fans of this one on the wiki. It's it's at 388 out of 908. Uh, there's songs that are definitely lower, but yeah, the stomp box is a guitar pedal, so that that is like that part of it's accurate. But at the same time, it's like I if, as a genre pastiche of punk, I don't think it's supposed to be insulting. No. Definitely more of an homage than a parody. Yeah. It's sort of like dig my grave almost. Okay, so I think we finally made it to the last track with uh, the end of the tour. There's a girl with a crown and a scepter Who's on WLSD And she says that the scene isn't what it's been And she's thinking of going home That it's old and it's totally over now And it's old and it's over, it's over now And it's over, it's over, it's over Now I can see myself at the end through the end of the world. 
the perfect closing track to me. Yeah. The most uh, on-the-nose ending track title as well. Right. And uh, it's one that they, I think, still perform, which is good because it's a very good track. If I was in a band and I had a song called The End of the Tour, I would only perform it on the last dates of each tour. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I mean, they've got enough other songs to pad out the rest of the sets, make it a special thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, why don't they break out Mr. Claw more often? <laughs> Love the uh, the second verse on this one. Very clearly describing a car crash. Mm-hmm. Never depart since the day we met out on Interstate 91. I was bent metal. You were a flaming wreck when we kissed at the overpass. Damn, John Linnell. That's evocative as hell. That's evocative as hell. My my main way of listening, I've actually probably listened to the cover of this song uh, by Hotel Lights that was done for Hello Radio more times than the original. Because it always throws me off when the guitars come in for the second verse. Yeah. Because hearing that second verse done like still as quietly as the first verse is done is, is actually very interesting. And I'd, uh, I'd recommend checking it, that out as well. I don't often recommend Hello Radio covers because most of that album is garbage. But uh, the Hotel Lights cover of the end yeah. of the tour is probably one of the better ones on the album. And this is another one with a dramatic reading on Gigantic. This one is uh, Michael McKeon. Michael McKeon! I love it! <laughs> it's also another one that they used uh, an instrumental version of for the Cartoon Planet soundtrack, apparently. Oh. Yeah. I gotta look this thing up. And this is the highest rated track on the album. Number eight out of 908. That doesn't surprise me. It really it really gets there. Yeah. It's really it's weird to me that it's not often it's not included on uh, a lot of compilations. It's included on some, but it, like it wasn't on user's guide. Was the David Foster Wallace biopic of the same name named after this song? I don't know. I'm going to just do some quick old googling that you can edit out. I don't know why I didn't do that, but it just I was thinking it the entire time I was listening to this album. It doesn't seem like it, according to the wiki, so... I guess it is just a phrase. It might just be a fun coincidence. I do also like the, the couplet, the engagements are booked through the end of the world, so we'll meet at the end of the tour. And I love how uh, immediately after that they start repeating, and we're never going to tour again, which I think is an interesting lyric coming after what must have been like a pretty shitty tour for them, right? The, the Please No Steppy tour, where everybody was such dicks to them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then also they just got a touring band together basically right i also just love the this was the vehicle these were the people you open the door and expelled all the people just like that old uh this was a church and this was the steeple and open the door and here's all the people little hand gestures you can do yeah that feels like the climax of the whole album yeah i'd love to figure out the the hand gesture that represents uh this was the vehicle these were the people you open the door and expelled all the people do you have to cut your fingers off to do that one (laughs) i think you might have to i think so all right, well, that was John Henry. That is John Henry. David, I'd be interested in knowing, I feel like we didn't really get to it, but why is this like your favorite They Might Be Giants album? What about this one sets it apart from the rest? It always, it just kind of always stuck out to me as like out of their discography, which is so huge. Um, it's just got a really like comfortable seeming calibration of like the the, the hard rockin' tunes that we all know and love. Uh, combined with like the darker themes, it it seems like a darker album than even Lincoln, um, which is a really a really depressing album when you uh, when you look at it. Um, but uh, it it seems like they kind of hit a nice balance um, in the musical territory to go along with the the words. And, and the move to a full band seems really unforced to me. It does feel very natural, yeah, like a logical progression. Yeah. I like how altogether it feels for a 20-track album. Like, thematically and musically, even though there are some, like, uh, genre experiments, everything really sounds like it's on the same album. Yeah, it's very cohesive. This is something that they wouldn't really 
accomplish again to the same effect until the else yeah like their next couple of albums there's a lot of uh there's a very almost like collection of songs feeling to it more than like singular piece that this album has this it it really just everything on this album feels like it should be on this album or like feels like it belongs on this album the production on this one also really feels like the sound of it just feels really like 90s indie rock to me as compared to what pat dillett brought to the table which kind of introduced a lot more clarity uh it seems like like it, it has a little bit of that that soupiness to the to the sound that i think is kind of fun to get into once in a while mm-hmm. i definitely agree with what matt was saying too about how this feels like their last kind of like consistent album yeah for a couple records that we're going to be going through next was i don't even mean like it was their last because I, I wouldn't even think that it applies to apollo 18 right yeah that's that's true yeah. <laughs> flood i feel has it this has it the else has it and the self-titled has it lincoln is all it's kind of all over the place genre wise even though it's my favorite apollo 18 was basically designed to be on shuffle yeah and then the rest of the albums we'll get to mm-hmm. as we get to them but like yeah it's nice. I think, though, like, what it has in consistent, it kind of lacks in, like, real, like, peaks and, like, like standout tracks. I think while it, like, plays really well front to back, a couple of the albums coming down the road are going to have songs that, like, stick with me more than any of the songs on this one do. That's a good point. I'm I'm really, like, an album person. It's, it's really uh, rare now. Um that I listen to just a couple songs uh, off of any given album. Like anytime I'm in the car, I'll start an album from the beginning, re- regardless of where I last left off on it. For my, for me, the standouts on this album are definitely "I Should Be Allowed to Think," "No One Knows My Plan," and probably the end of the tour. So I just named three Linnell tracks because that's I'm 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 honest. If not anything, it's Linnell tracks are often the ones that are going to be the huge standouts for me. Yeah, I would put Subliminal up with those three, but that would definitely be my top four. Do you have a reduced version of this album, Matt? It's me, of course I do. I've got one that's. Of course you do. Let's do it. I've got one that's ten songs, twenty nine minutes, a real breeze to get through. I think. Ooh, beautiful. Let's let's hear it. I really played around with the track order too, so you might be excited about that. Ooh. Uh, the first side, first five tracks are Subliminal. I should be allowed to think. Sleeping in the Flowers, Extra Savoir Faire, and No One Knows My Plan. Okay. Ooh, beautiful. Really, really tight top five. Yeah. Side two opens up with that really nice extended intro from Dirt Bike mm-hmm. before going to Meet James Enzer, Destination Moon, Out of Jail, and The End of the Tour. Surprised you didn't have a self-called Nowhere on there. I would have pegged that as a track you'd like. I, I, I did for a while, but I eventually ended up subbing it out for Meet James Enzer because I think that keeps the second half flowing pretty quickly self-called nowhere is like it's it's good but it kind of slows things down a little too much for a second side i think three and a half minutes is is practically a godspeed song for them yeah (laughs) the only one i would have thrown in there that you didn't was uh just window feels like a mood piece for the whole album okay i'll spend some more time with that one i'm sure like all the ones that like didn't really hit me while preparing for this will like go on to grow on me like all they mimic giant songs do well it's not like we just listen to this album for this and then never listen to it again of course yeah it's always good to reconsider the things that you've listened to before and we're never gonna listen again Next, we've got to get on to listening to, uh, what is it, Factory Showroom? Factory Showroom is next. I'm looking forward to that one. I, I do really like Factory Showroom. Cool. This is going to be an interesting one to talk about. One thing we can look forward to in the next album, it is a tight 14 tracks. Thank God. Which is, I believe, the shortest one so far. This is one that does not get a lot of play with people. I feel like the the mid-90s albums are kind of the 
the forgotten land of They Might Be Giants fandom. Yeah, they do strike me as that. Yeah, yeah this is also true of some of the early 2000s albums, although some of those will have like slightly more negative opinions around them. There's one early 2000s album that I'm really looking forward to talking to you about. I don't want to spoil what it is, but I can't wait to get to that one. If it's the one I'm thinking of, I have many people ready to line up to defend it. Cool. Yeah, I think I know which one you're talking about. So that will be that will be very, very fun. Great. Uh, David, thanks again so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. And do we want to plug some stuff? David, why don't you plug your stuff first? You're the guest. Hey, I'm David. Um, you could find me on Twitter at Dave's, uh, D-A-V-V-V-E-S, uh, which is a fun Waves reference uh, that I never got around to changing uh, for the last 10 years. Uh, what else? Uh, you can listen to Tuning Fork, which Matt and I host on Noise Space, and also The Stick, uh, which is a Homestar Runner podcast uh, that Eden and I host uh, every every time we think of a reason to do an episode. <laughs> you know, Pocket Cast has become my enemy because it tries to estimate when the next episode is coming out based on how often you release tracks, <laughs> and it's and it says the stick is canceled. Yeah, shows on hiatus or otherwise canceled. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, PocketCast is very rude about that. It is. Matt, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at MattGCN. You can find me on Tumblr at Tramampoline. I have many podcasts on this here network, noisespace.xyz, including Tuning Fork, as David mentioned. Uh, we have an episode coming out soon about Meriwether Post Pavilion by Animal Collective, and it is well over two hours long because <laughs> we sure have a lot to say about Animal Collective. Can't wait to listen to that one. Uh, I'm also on Henry Kissinger's Pokemon Going to Die pretty much every other week at this point. It's a politics podcast, and it's basically the flagship show of the network. So if you're listening to this, you've probably heard of it. Eventually, I'll start my other two podcasts over again. I just have to have like the drive to get on to it. But for now, it's keeping noise space running and keeping it running pretty. Which you do well. I try my best. Yeah, thank you for that. I know there's been like a lot of overhauls at the network and stuff, and it seems like you've been like putting in a lot of work. So thank you for everything you do for all the shows. Yeah. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Trevor Ickrath with all the vowels taken out. It's T-R-V-R-K-R-T-H. And I do podcasts like Halloween Monkeys, which is about gorillas, State of Swift, which is about Taylor Swift. Um, I also, I recently launched a podcast about Evangelion, uh, Get in the Robot, which earned me my first negative review on iTunes ever. Yes, <laughs> you did it. Yeah, anime fans are very rude, it turns out. That's kind of how that goes. All right, well, let's wrap up the episode. Uh, I've been Trevor Ickrath. I've been Matt Ribeiro. And I'm David Besser. And we'll meet at the end of the tour. Engagements are booked till the end of the world, and we'll get another episode out eventually. Spy, 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 spy.